Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So we had to leave, and you can imagine the feeling. Our house just is about to be bombed at any moment. You know, I actually don't know if I want to process this because I'm afraid that if I do, I might break down. Welcome to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter. Today, we're going inside the Israel-Hamas war with two perspectives from two members of the media who are living two different realities. An Israeli editor in Jerusalem and a Palestinian journalist in Gaza. What they have in common is that they are both working under the threat of attack. We're going to talk with them about their professional roles and their emotions over the past five days, what they believe is missing from the media coverage of the conflict, and how they are navigating an online sea of mis- and disinformation. First, we're going to speak with Avi Mayer, the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, who is trying to rally his newsroom in the face of cyber attacks on their website and the very real attacks raining down from the sky. There are rockets that have come to Jerusalem, where I am, to Tel Aviv, where some of my colleagues are. We've had to run down to the bomb shelter while putting together tomorrow's paper on several occasions. Uh, This entire country is one big uh, war zone at the moment. Then we're going to go to Gaza and speak with Mohammed Mohawish, one of the few English-speaking journalists who is reporting from Gaza City. He's been writing for The Nation and Al Jazeera, among other outlets. Personally speaking, we lost three journalists, like yesterday, to an Israeli airstrike. They were wearing the press vest and they were wearing their helmets on. So knowing that I can be a target at any moment is just very horrific. But we still continue reporting and running from one area to another just to be able to speak the voice of the people who are being killed. Both of these interviews were conducted on Wednesday afternoon local time. First, here's Avi Mayer of the Jerusalem Post. Avi, where were you on Saturday morning? Um, I was in bed. Um, I had uh, neglected to set an alarm uh, for Shabbat morning services, uh, and I was allowing myself to sleep in a bit when I heard um, what sounded like uh, an air raid siren off in the distance. And as I got closer to my window, it became very clear that that's what it was. Um, I woke up my sister who was spending the weekend with me. We went to a corner of my apartment furthest from the windows that if there were um, a rocket blast, we would be furthest from that impact um, and just sort of huddled. Um, and then once uh, the sirens died down, Um, I did something I don't usually do, which is I turned on my phone. Um, I usually will not use my phone on Shabbat on Saturday morning. Um, And I saw that there was a developing situation in the South. And that was really just the beginning of of the horror of the past few days. Indeed. Have you had a chance to begin to process the enormity of this yet? Or is it all still too raw and real? You know, I actually don't know if I want to process this because I'm afraid that if I do, I might break down. 
Um, the enormity of this tragedy cannot be overstated. 1,200 people dead uh, as of press time. God only knows if that number will increase. Uh, the number of families shattered, the number of uh, parents who, who lost children, children who lost parents, grandparents, it's unfathomable. And of course, couple that with the untold number of hostages currently being held in Gaza, including elderly men and women, uh, small children, mothers and babies. Uh, it, the, the enormity of this is is really difficult to to grasp. And so um, I've not really had a chance to process. I've been throwing myself into work, doing one interview after another, running this newsroom, keeping us online despite cyber attacks and doing everything one has to do at a time of war. Um, but I suspect that when I do have a moment to start processing, it will all come crashing down on me. And I'm not sure how I'm going to handle it when that happens. Mm. You are relatively new as editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. Uh, you previously worked at the American Jewish Committee. Uh, you worked uh, you were, worked in the Israeli military. So tell me about how you view your role as editor-in-chief of this news organization at a time of war. What is the role of journalism right now? Look, I think we view it as our responsibility to get the story of this country out to the world. We are an Israeli publication, but our audience is global. Um, we are by far the leading uh, Israeli news outlet in the English language, and we view it as our responsibility, our duty to get these stories out to the world. Um, we have encountered uh, quite a lot of opposition and resistance. Um, as I noted earlier, we've been under fairly constant cyber attacks since uh, Saturday morning. They have at times succeeded in taking us offline. Um, we've been alternating between being on and offline. We've, of course, been active on social media throughout but uh, you know, I think that just sort of strengthens our resolve to do what we must to, to perform our journalistic duty um, and ensure that we are reporting accurately, fairly, and comprehensively about everything that's going on in Israel today. What have you been telling your staff about uh, how to balance the personal and the professional while they are living through this horror and also reporting on it? Yeah, look, it's it's taken a tremendous toll. Um, we have had members of our reporting team who have been uh, called up for reserve duty, others uh, whose children have, have done so. We have made available to our staff various resources. There's actually um, a hotline that's been established by the Union of Journalists in Israel to help uh, journalists cope with the, the mental health challenges of this moment. And I've been checking in with individual staff members to ensure that they're doing okay. Those who I see uh, are, are sort of struggling or having a more difficult time been getting a little bit more attention than others. Um, but at the end of the day, we're a group of professionals who are here to do a very difficult job under almost impossible circumstances. And that's what we'll continue doing. To some extent, every member of your staffer is in a war zone currently. But how do you think about sending people out to places that may be even more dangerous than, than other places? How are you managing that? Well, we have uh, at times sent members of staff, reporters down to the southern communities. We've only done so when we've been given the all clear by uh, local authorities. They've gone in with protection, wearing uh, helmets and flak jackets and things like that. Um, you know, obviously the safety and security of our staff is paramount and we won't do anything to put them in harm's way. At the same time, they feel a responsibility uh, to tell the story from the ground. And that's what they've been doing. Um, and we will continue to do so as circumstances permit. 
And those circumstances include these cyber attacks. Had this happened before Saturday? Is this something that you've been dealing with at the Jerusalem Post before? Or is this new that the website's uh, under attack from, uh, I guess, people trying to take you offline? Uh, It's not new. This is something we encounter quite often. At times they succeed, they generally do not. It appears as though uh, this instance was more determined, more coordinated, more substantial than previously, which leads us to believe that there may be state actors behind it. Um, We do have confirmation that there have been state actors behind efforts to take us offline in the past. Um, We have some indication of who's behind it. This time I'd rather not discuss uh, who it is so as not to give them uh, undue publicity or increase their motivation to attack us or others. But um, yes, this is definitely something that we have encountered many times in the past. Um, again, we are the most recognizable name coming out of Israel, the most recognizable voice, and that is something that many people would like to silence. Um, we, of course, will not permit that to happen. We remain active on all social media channels, even as they knock our website offline. And of course, we're doing whatever right we can to ensure that the website is online and, and getting the word out as comprehensively as possible. Every time I've checked, it's been working for me, which I've been grateful for. Uh, but that's thanks to your engineers and technicians, you know, making sure it's still online. What about the role of social media then? Does that mean you, you're focusing more on X and Facebook and platforms like that? Well, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that those are platforms that we utilize on a daily basis. That's certainly not unique to this conflict. Um, but I think one of the aspects of of this conflict, and I think it's something that perhaps I should have noted earlier, is that we're actually all at the front at the moment. Um, there are rockets that have come to Jerusalem, where I am, to Tel Aviv, where some of my colleagues are. Yeah. Um, we've had to run down to the bomb shelter while putting together tomorrow's paper Um, On several occasions, Uh, this entire country is one big uh, war zone at the moment. And so, um, you know, social media has been helpful in conveying the the extent of that. Um, We've been utilizing it to warn people in various parts of the country that there are rockets incoming wherever they are. Um, And quite frankly, to give those around the world a sense that that's what Israelis are living with at the moment. The fact that we have uh, rocket alerts that are appearing on our app and our website every five to 10 minutes, um, that's something that Israelis are living with every single day, every moment of every single day. Um, There are families that haven't left their homes in the past few days because they're too afraid to go far from their bomb shelters. They don't know whether a siren might catch them outdoors and they won't have a place to shelter uh, if there is a rocket attack. And so, you know, this is something that is very present in the lives of many Israelis at the moment. And of course, that's coupled with the devastating, devastating blow of 1,200 deaths um, that only now are are sort of trickling down into Israeli society and, and people are sort of understanding the enormity of this tremendous tragedy. And the stories are devastating. The stories of uh, young people um, who were uh, often vastly outnumbered, who fought to the last bullet um, and were ultimately mowed down. The stories of uh, parents who were slain in their homes with their children. The stories of elderly people who uh, were taken on golf carts into Gaza and paraded around like trophies. These are stories that are extremely real and that are affecting the lives of so many in Israel and around the world. And we view it as our duty to tell those stories Um, in as comprehensive a manner as we possibly can. Quick break here, but then I want to get into the role of social media in both spreading helpful but also very hurtful information during the war. More with Avi Mayer of the Jerusalem Post in just a moment. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. 
You deserve a politics and news podcast, expert analysis, no spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. We're back here on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Now, more of my interview with Avi Mayer, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. There's been so much real and horrific information on social media. There's also been a deluge of myths and disinformation, especially on Elon Musk's X. Um, have you personally seen this? And, and what do you think X should be doing about it? Well, the the scourge of disinformation on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, is not new. It's something um, I've encountered for a decade or more. Anytime there is a round of warfare between Israel and the terrorist organizations in Gaza, you have all sorts of photos that start circulating, many of which uh, were taken elsewhere in the world that have nothing to do with the conflict and that are portrayed as, as though they represent what's going on in real time. That is a challenge that is ongoing, and I'm sure we will see that uh, in the days ahead. I think it is absolutely incumbent um, on Elon Musk and on the leadership of his platform to do whatever they can to clamp down on misinformation, to remove accounts that are uh, seen as circulating that misinformation intentionally. Um, but I think more generally, the fact that Hamas and its supporters have free reign on that platform and others uh, to not only circulate these, these snuff films and these horrific images, um, but to spew horrific, anti-Semitic, hateful propaganda is abhorrent. And the fact that they are enabled to do so and that they are welcomed on this platform and aren't removed, I think, is absolutely unacceptable. And so I would expect not only Elon Musk and his platform, but every platform to ensure that they are not serving as uh, as a megaphone for these horrific views and these horrific ideologies. I certainly think that we should have room for robust debate, and that's not something we should ever shut down. But there's a line between robust debate, hate speech, and certainly hate speech that could lead to violence. I think that's what we often see happening on these platforms. So where should the line be exactly? Is it inciting of violence? Well, I think incitement to violence is uh, can be very broadly defined, but I think that certainly anything that calls for the wanton murder of, of Jews or anyone else uh, that celebrates acts of murder and violence, um, that dehumanizes, that promotes conspiracy theories or blood libels. Um, these are things that I encounter literally every single day. Um, and nothing has been done about it. It's, if anything, it's gotten worse under Elon Musk's leadership. Um, and I think that that is absolutely something that he must take seriously. It's certainly something uh, that many Jewish figures around the world have called on him to do. Um, yeah. And I certainly hope that he takes those voices seriously. I don't see a lot of evidence of that so far, but but I share your hope. Uh, I, I have the same hope. I, I've been trying to navigate X, trying to find reliable sources, reliable information, and it's it's harder than ever, although it is still possible. Maybe this is a sensitive question, but uh, how do you, if at all, gather information from Gaza uh, and from the Palestinians? And uh, how do you approach that, if at all? Well, we do have a Palestinian affairs correspondent who is very plugged into what's happening in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip. And so we rely on him for some of that um, we are, of course, also plugged into 
many Palestinian news agencies and also international news agencies that are active in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere. Um, I think one thing that we need to realize, and I think our readership does as well, is that Gaza, of course, is not a free territory. It is controlled by uh, Hamas, which is a, a fundamentalist dictatorship. It is not a free society and information does not flow freely. And so, you know, I think that's something that we sometimes grapple with. You know, for example, when we have uh, numbers of casualties that come out of Gaza, they are coming from the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health. Are those numbers accurate? Um, you know, to one extent, are they reliable? Of course, we know that there are casualties. We see the images. We don't know to one extent those figures are being distorted by the Hamas uh, leadership in an effort to gain international sympathy or portray things in one way or another. And so that's something that we are constantly grappling with as our colleagues and other organizations around the world. With regards to my other guest, uh, a journalist working in Gaza, do you trust information that comes from journalists and writers who are there? Well, that's a complicated question. You know, I, I think ultimately there are obviously serious journalists in Gaza as there are elsewhere around the world. Um, I, I think that there have been uh, quite a few instances in which journalists in Gaza have been found to be associated with Hamas or with Hamas-controlled media organizations. Those obviously are highly suspect. I wouldn't take anything they take seriously. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's a really a case-by-case basis. You know, there are certain uh, journalists who, of course, are associated with international news agencies whose reporting, I think, we would consider to be much more reliable. Um, but those certainly who are uh, independent or associated with uh, this or that Hamas outlet, um, I think everything they report should be taken with with a grain of salt. So much of what we're learning is coming from the camera phones of either combatants or civilians uh, who are caught in the middle of this. You know, I noticed Barry Weiss on MSNBC a couple of days ago saying the Nazis tried to hide their war crimes. Hamas is live streaming theirs. I, I wonder what your impression is of the Hamas strategy, the propaganda strategy, uh, given your years in the military. What, 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 are they, what, are, what are they thinking? You know, why are, they, why are they showing the world these atrocities by themselves? I think one of the most gut-wrenching stories that I uh, have heard over the past few days was that of a young woman um, who learned that her grandmother had been murdered when the Hamas terrorist who murdered her uh, filmed it using her own phone and then put the video on her Facebook profile. Um, the, the stories are atrocious. They, they're, they're difficult to believe. It feels as though we're in a bit of a horror show. And I think that that is... The reality that, quite frankly, Hamas wants us to feel. Um, they're not in the least bit ashamed by this. Um, you know, there were claims that um, the, the duties of governing the Gaza Strip would cause it to moderate, that it was an organization that was really just concerned with the welfare of the people in Gaza. And here they are telling us, no, no, we have never, ever changed our stripes. We are a murderous, genocidal terrorist organization. We are similar to ISIS. That is who we are. That is what we believe in. And it's time for you to understand that. And now we do understand it. And the question is, what do we as Israelis and what does the world do in response? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the impression that, that you view part of your role as trying to get Americans, to get people in other countries to see that reality, to face it. Absolutely. You know, that is part of the reality of this part of the world. If we are, are a liberal democracy in Israel, certainly an imperfect one, um, but one that is maintained uh, by the rule of law that has uh, a judiciary that has uh, certain standards of morality and ethics that apply to its soldiers, that is not 
what we see on the other side. They simply are in a different moral universe than we are. I think that that's something that we need to be understanding. And that's certainly not true of all of Palestinian society, and no one should make that that claim. But the fact that Hamas is the organization that we are currently contending with and that it is in control of the Gaza Strip, it is holding it in this uh, iron grasp, I think is something that we need to start understanding. And that's a reality mm. that we view it as our responsibility to share with the world. Mm. 20 years ago, you and I were both college freshmen in Maryland. Uh, you went to College Park. I went to Towson right up the road. Um, mm-hmm. We're the same age but here I am in the United States in uh, you know, a safe and comfortable environment, and there you are in Jerusalem in the middle of a war. Is there any part of you that feels like you're in the wrong place, or does this feel like the right place for you to be right now? Um, you know, I, uh, I love America. I was born in America. I'm tremendously grateful to America for having taken my grandparents in as they were fleeing Nazi Europe, and yet... Uh, my life is and will always be in Israel. Um, I feel that my life here has a, a, a dimension of meaning that I'd have never experienced anywhere else, that there's a purpose to my presence here. Um, and if I can play some role in this sensitive moment in time, this, uh, I think, groundbreaking moment in, in Jewish and Israeli and human history, um, then that is a role that I will embrace. And I think that that's something that I feel every single day. It's not always easy. In fact, it's often quite difficult, but that is what has been guiding me through this period and, and guides me through my life in this country much more broadly. Avi, thank you so much. Hope you can stay safe. Thank you. I was so grateful to Avi for making some time to speak with us uh, and also grateful to our next guest, one of the few English-speaking journalists who is in Gaza, who is reporting from the Gaza Strip right now. That interview is in just a moment. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. I'm Brian Stelter. Mohammed Mahawish is a Palestinian journalist in Gaza City. When I reached out to him for an interview earlier this week, uh, we connected via WhatsApp, but he couldn't talk right away because he said he was being evacuated from his home. There were warnings about imminent bombings by the Israelis. I asked him about that and about how, as a practical matter, he's able to report from Gaza when we spoke on Wednesday afternoon. Mohammed, it's very rare to be able to speak with someone inside Gaza uh, right now. So can you tell us where you are and what you've been doing? Yes, uh, thanks, Brian. It's it's been really intense a couple of days in here. We are now midday and the fifth day of this war. 
Um, it's really tragic and intense on the ground. What we are seeing as both residents of the Gaza Strip and journalists is really horrific and beyond being describable. It's, it's just like really scary to be on the ground, just covering in a place that's full of um, artillery fire and under the airstrikes and, and, and violent bombings. Uh, I'm basically based in the middle of the Gaza Strip in city center of Gaza City. And you've been writing for outlets like Al Jazeera English and The Nation magazine. How do you view your role as a journalist um, and also as a citizen right now? Absolutely. It's, it's, um, I've been freelancing as a journalist for now five years almost. And I, not only as, as a job, but I feel as a Palestinian journalist, it's my duty to be able to speak to the outside world, telling what's really happening on the ground. It's been really challenging to be running across the city at such times, uh, knowing that I can be a target at any moment, at any time. Personally speaking, we lost three journalists like yesterday to an Israeli airstrike. They were wearing the press vest and they were wearing their helmets on, although they were targeted by an Israeli airstrike from an F-16. So knowing that I can be a target at any moment is just very horrific. But we still continue reporting and running from one area to another just to be able to speak the voice of the people who are being killed and entirely wiped out. Entire neighborhoods here have been entirely massacred um, and bombed throughout the nights and throughout the days. Since Israel declared a war um, on Hamas in here, on Gaza, it's been under entirely full blockade from the ground, sea and air preventing the necessary and urgent medical um, equipment from entering into the Gaza Strip and from also accessing the humanitarian organizations and crews from accessing into the Strip to be able to help with the operations on the ground. But we're not seeing, we're not able to see much of this. We're not able to witness a lot of it because there's so little media. And that's partly because Hamas doesn't allow free and independent media in Gaza. Well, it's not only about just being in a place that uh, in a war, Brian. Uh, Hamas at the moment is just not in a place to control media. It's just it's merely able to stand in front of the Israeli military. And the people who have been here reporting from the ground are just basically like myself. We are not affiliated with any professional organization for at least getting paid for what we are doing. I mean, I'm a freelance journalist. And until now, I've been like filing like tens of stories, and I haven't been able paid for that. Even if I were to be paid for that, I cannot even go to, down the streets and have my money in my hands. It's entirely destroyed. The streets are leading to the central areas of Gaza are being shut down. Are they angry at Hamas for this atrocious assault into Israel? Or are they only angry at Israel? Are they only taking it out on Israel? Um, well, there is a mix of um, of feelings at the moment. Uh, on one side, the people are just feeling very scared and frightened of uh, their anticipation of an Israeli long-term escalation and targeting of their areas and neighborhoods. Um, on the other side of the story, there is some sort of um, a hope, Brian, for feeling that Palestinians exist and they have the right to to at least speak up in the face of the systematic oppression that they have been under for now, not only during the previous weeks and months, but since 
70 years now. It's always that the Palestinians who are to blame when they fire back and react and respond to the Israeli occupation and to their systematic policies of discrimination and apartheid. If we were in a place to condemn Hamas, I'm, I'm not, I'm not belonging to them. I'm not defending them. I'm not speaking on behalf of them. But as a resident of the Gaza Strip, what I'm paying attention to right now is the civilian population that's bearing the heavy toll of the war and the Israeli airstrikes. And I'm like pragmatic, like strategically speaking, I can expect that this would end. If not soon, it would end one day. And it would not basically advance anything, but at least it would advance one fact that the Palestinians have the right to, to, to respond. And if they do not have the right to respond, then there should be a different question to the story. I hear children's voices in the background. And I, I wonder if you've talked with any young people, talked with children, talked with parents about how they are coping, just on a practical level, right? What are those children yeah. doing right now? Um, this is this is my kid, by the way, who's two years old now. And just having a kid during these times is very horrific. And and, and just feeling that we could be a target any moment uh, is just more horrible. We are trying to have some sort of a distraction, although there is nothing much of that uh, during this time, as we have no electricity or any sort of um, entertainment during these times. But we tend to have this kind of insurance and kind of conversations that would distract each other from the sounds of explosions and bombings that are happening basically at the very same area that we are residing in. And I know yesterday you had to evacuate from your home at one point. Uh, what, yes. what happened at that moment when we, we were texting on WhatsApp and you said you had to leave your home? What happened then? Exactly. Yeah, we, we were packing our bags and emergency pack uh, belongings uh, to just rush out uh, outside the house because only at around Around 8 p.m. Gaza time, we received an evacuation alert from the Israeli military spokesperson um, urging the entire residents of the Adarish neighborhood in Gaza City here, uh, which is basically where I live with my family, to evacuate the entire area as they were about to launch their airstrikes in here. So we had to leave. And you can imagine the feeling, just anticipate and seeing our house just is about to be bombed at any moment. And, you, and there is nothing we could do about that. And we just like escaped for safety and to take cover from the bombing. But what happened exactly after that is that no bombings took place, you know? And after six hours of that, we returned to our homes at around 4.30 in the morning, the bombing started with the people who have just entered back into their homes and residential complexes. At that very moment, the airstrikes began and the people have been trapped under um and 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 i could i could i could hear it it was very very painful and tragic to hear the voice of the people just looking for a lifeline from under the rubble of their homes with the ambulances and the health crews weren't being able to allow entry into the area i mean one ambulance vehicle got close enough to help those trapped under the layers of cement and it was bombed this is basically what happened after we spoke yesterday so then how in the world do you wake up in the morning and decide to keep writing and keep reporting? Exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm telling you, this is not only a job. This is my duty. I mean, this is particularly what I should be doing. And every Palestinian is feeling the same way that they should be doing, even if they were not professional journalists, at least documenting the crimes that are happening on the ground in here. Because for basically two reasons, um, 
first of all, to to prove for the world that Palestinians are not applauding the death and the the the, the, the killing of civilian people, as opposed to what's been misrepresented on the media. We are not celebrating the death of civilian people. We are not celebrating the death of of people across the borders. Of course not. This is not what the Palestinian people do. But we are doing in here is just having a sense of solidarity with each other that we are united against an occupying force, a nuclear power, a country that is enjoying full support and backing from not only the U.S., from the strongest players on the diplomatic and from the political landscape in in the world. And it's only against 360 square kilometers plot of of land with only a 1,000 people just having their guns and trying to stand up in front of the Israeli military. So this is basically what's happening. I mean, the people are here are not having the time to discuss whether they are feeling good or bad. They are just basically merely having the time to save their lives and the lives of their loved ones. What they are living on the ground is horrific, dear Brian. It's 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 really tragic. I'm speaking of the... Um, the human rights that they could yearn for. For example, clean drinking water is now running out of entire areas across the Gaza Strip. For for me, I have some here in my house, but if the war goes on for more two days or three days, I wouldn't be having enough clean drinking water or food or baby food for my baby. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, and I am feeling lucky. Even after that, I am feeling lucky because... I haven't been bombed. I haven't been targeted because those who have been injured down the streets in the central hospital of Ashifa hospital down the street in Gaza city in here are seeing the worst of nightmares they could ever see. On one side, there is no enough medical treatment and medical staff that are having to to take care for them. On the other side, Israeli military, as you have seen on the news, the Israeli military is imposing a full blockade on all the way ends and, and crossings to the Gaza Strip. Okay. And around three hours ago, we heard uh, a statement from the spokesperson of the Palestinian Ministry of Health in here, Ashraf al-Qidra, who said in very exact words that in a few hours, the hospitals in the Gaza Strip are going to be running out of electricity and power, which implies the 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 probability and the consequence of of mass mass death cases Hmm. because at the very moment that we are speaking now hundreds of people dear brian hundreds and i'm speaking if not thousands are under the intensive care of electricity run equipments and oxygen generators at the hospital is this something that the world might be able to condemn or describe as a sort of a punishment for an entire population or as a sort of a war crime? I don't know. I'm, I'm not very expert to, to say about that. Mm. When you're describing these reports from the hospital, for example, it makes me yeah. wonder, where do you get information? How do you get informed uh, about what is happening up and down the strip? Um, are, are there media outlets you rely on? Are there text message chains? How do you get information within Gaza? I run myself to the outside and just trying to be safe across the streets to report those stories. This is part of the story. The second part, what I get my information is from basically the witnesses on the ground and the people who have been part of the crimes and the officials and the very people who are in charge of running those hospitals and the ministries and the authorities in Gaza. So in my 
recent stories. For example, I, I, I spoke to people who have been ordered to flee their homes for schools to be safe. And then after they took shelter and cover in the UNRWA-led schools, they were targeted as well in schools. So I spoke with these people to make uh, my reporting uh, more, more, more alive because there are a number of stories that, that, that we can basically see in here and we can basically hear. The officials of the Gaza Strip, including the Ministry of Health, are very available at the call and the very message. They are responsive and they are being available all the time for not only for contact with the press and the media, but also for emergency inquiries and for emergency calls from the residents and from the people in those areas that are being um, airstriked. Just as a practical matter, you talked about the lack of electricity, the lack of power. How are they able to communicate and how are you able to stay online right now? I'm, I'm running out of battery every now and then, but I'm going to a clinic that's very close to my house in here and I charge my phone using that. But in case of if it goes out in, 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 in a few hours and if it stills out in, in a few days coming, I'm not really sure if I can be able to continue reporting. And this mm-hmm. is not the worst part of the story. The worst part is that we haven't been able to anticipate an end for this yet, as mediation efforts have failed so far. Uh, talks of regional intervention has been a failure. And yeah, we're not going to basically anticipate what's happening um, in two days until it really happens. Uh, at this moment, I, I fortunately have been able to manage to have uh, some sort of uh, data for my phone and internet and just try to be up with, with the battery from like external charging from here and there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Like for my personal perspective inside my house, I'm not having electricity. I'm not having any clean drink water at the moment. I'm just depending on the assistance of my neighbors who happen luckily to have enough amounts of water. So given these constraints, I don't know if you've been able to consume outside or international media coverage of the war. Um, If you have, what are your impressions of how this is covered externally and internationally? I'm feeling really, really um, heartbroken, uh, dear Brian, to see this because it's always reported uh, in a way that it's not about why. It's not about why Palestinians are doing that. It's about how they are doing and what they are doing. In fact, it's been always misrepresented that the Palestinian people are fighting the Jewish people or the Israeli people because they have a different course of culture or language or a different set of of, of social, uh, I mean, habits and, and, and daily lives. But in fact, this is not what they are doing. We are not fighting the Jewish people because we have a love for bloodshed or hate or anti-peace or anti-love. Uh, we are not re- refusing to shake hands with the Israeli people because they're Israeli or because they have a different nationality. What we are refusing to do is to kneel down to the system that doesn't spare a chance of killing those people for only calling for their very basic human rights, like self-determination and sovereignty. And the double standards is a very, very like different story and a different narrative to this. It's a, it's, it's a very long story. Palestinians have suffered for years of that. If we are speaking uh, in a very comparative ways, I should be only mentioning a very brief mention of how the war has been covered in Ukraine with the Russian forces when they invaded the Ukrainian lands. The entire world stood on its feet 
just applauding the rights of the Ukrainian people for self-defense and determination and sovereignty. However, when it only happens in Palestine, it's one side that's to blame, which is unfortunately the Palestinians. This is the tragic part of the story. This is the, the, the sad reality that we are trying to, to, to oppose. In one of your reports for Al Jazeera, you quoted a survivor in northern Gaza who said, death seems to be closer, but I can do nothing about it. Do you feel that's true for you as well, that death is creeping closer? Exactly. I'm, I'm very feeling this. Uh, I'm speaking to you with explosions in my background. I, I'm not really sure if you can hear that, um, but at any moment we can be a target. What I'm seeing with full emphasis is that the civilian toll of this war has been very devastating. I stood at the areas that were bombed and I saw firsthand the casualties that fell down as a matter of a result for those airstrikes. Believe me, they are, and I'm not speaking as, 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 as someone who's just happened to be in the place, but I'm speaking as someone who have um, seen this in my naked eye, in my very first eye, that it's children, it's elderly people, it's women, it's infants. Entire families are being wiped out, dear Brian. Entire families. I can now, we have contact now. I can share with you whatever footage I have in here and you can see yourself what's happening in those areas. Entire families are being trapped under the rubble of their homes and they are not even able to call for health crews or for help. Mahabad, I hope you and your family are able to stay safe. Thank you for talking with me. Thank you very much, Brian. Thanks very much for the opportunity and for having me. That was Mohammed Mahawish, a freelance journalist in Gaza. Before that, we spoke with Avi Mayer, the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Jake Loomis. And mixing is by Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. Thank you for tuning in. Email me anytime with your ideas and thoughts for future episodes. I'm at bstelter at gmail.com. You can also find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. We'll be back next week with more Inside the Hive. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th.